Welcome, and welcome especially to those online. Here we are together once again. So I have some questions for you. What do you think is the psychological cost of bearing a secret? It takes energy, doesn't it? Especially if it's a secret that you kind of are afraid that somebody's gonna find out about it. The research shows that it boosts, having a secret that you have to keep boosts stress hormones in your body. It increases your blood pressure. It makes poor sleep. It exacerbates any mental health problems you already had. It makes it hard to wrestle with substance abuse disorders. It increases chronic pain. Carrying a secret is bad news. It's hard on your body and hard on your mind. Got another question for you. Why do so many famous performers, especially child performers when they grow up, self-destruct? What's that about? It's not just the culture of self-destruction out there. When you ask people about it, they say, well, you, if you're living in a fishbowl and everybody's looking at you and they won't stop looking at you and you can't go anywhere without them looking at you and asking you stupid questions, but they don't know you. They just know this thing on TV. It's hard. The effect of being famous is loneliness. Isn't that weird? That's how it shakes out, though. Here's the deal, though. The same thing happens to us. Even my dearest people don't really know me. Not really. I mean, they mean to. They want to. They try to. But there's parts of me they just don't know. Parts of me that I barely know. And I don't really know them. I remember four or five years after my dad died, realizing that I couldn't remember his voice. And that what I tried to remember of him really was mostly stories my mom told about him. It wasn't actually him. And when I thought about trying to remember actually him, I realized all I really knew of him was what I saw as a child. Much of which I misinterpreted, and I didn't see a whole lot. You know, just the dad part. I never really knew him. I don't even actually really know myself. I mean, Paul talks in, in Romans 7 about, uh, you know, why do I do the stuff I do? He says, I, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do that. I, I don't get myself. What's going on? I've, I've asked many, many times, you ever just get sick and tired of yourself? Do you know why you do your stuff? You find yourself going in loops and, and spiral paths and things and wonder, how did I wind up here? What, what's going on? Why do, why, I, 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 but you can't really get very far into the clutter closet in the hallway of your interior person. We just, we can't really get access to ourselves. Do you feel that sometimes? You're kind of a mystery to yourself? God, knows my heart. My heart, the place that I can't even really go. 
Think about when, when Philip, the disciple of Jesus, met Jesus in town, and after talking with him, he realized, wow, this is the guy. And he goes tearing out of town to find his brother Nathaniel, who's way out in the field, sitting under a fig tree, having a nap. And he grabs Nathaniel, come here, come here, come here, we found him, we found the one, come on in. And Nathaniel goes tearing back into town after him, and Jesus sees them coming, and Jesus says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel is like, wait, what? How do you know me? And Jesus said, I knew you and saw you sitting under the fig tree before Philip even found you. God knows us. God knows us. What is the power of being known? To be truly known for who you actually are, not who you think you are, but who you really and truly are. Where you came from, what your history is, what you dream about, who you want to be. What's the power of being known? Word. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. Sit with that. And we're not just known. We're known and loved. Isn't that incredible? Here's the thing. Somebody once told me, and it, it was kind of hard for me to really get a grip on this, even though I knew it. He, he was explaining to me, he said, look, God is really, 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 really smart. <laughs> and God really, 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 really loves you. There's just nothing he doesn't know about you, and he loves you. That takes a little while to digest. Even my past and my future. Right? Word. You have encircled me behind and in front and placed your hand on me. In some translations of this psalm, it says, you hem me in behind and in front. You hedge me around. And it, when I first read that as a kid, that sounded like God had me in a trap. But that's not what this is. That verb, hedge me around, was referring to the kind of thorn bush hedge, the thick, impenetrable protection that you plant around your herd of sheep. It's protection behind and in front. My past, God protects and guards me there. Well, yeah, but what about the time when blah, blah, blah? Well, if I go back to that memory and I say, God, where were you? He'll show me. He'll show me where he was and what he was doing. He'll tell me what I need to know about that memory. He won't change what happened, but he'll change what it means. He'll protect my heart in that memory. Well, what about the future, God? What about, what if, what if, you know, because I mean, there's a lot of bad news on the horizon, right? We all try not to think about it, but it's looming over our heads. What if, God? 
well, I'll be there. God keeps reminding me that he's, he's like a film editor, you know, I mean, I have to do the movie one frame at a time. He gets to see the whole thing at once. He's already in the future. He already knows what's coming down the pike, and he's already there for us. That's the truth. So he, he heals the loneliness in our past. He heals the fear in our future. I wanted to show you a little film clip about this from Graham Cook, just a few seconds long. It's kind of neat. That's a cool word, huh? Here's word. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't comprehend it. Think about Job. All the stuff happens to Job. All of it, right? There was just kind of nothing left that could possibly happen that didn't happen to Job. And Job reacted. He tried to tell himself that God was being fair, but he knew God wasn't being fair, and so he wound up just saying, God, would you just, why? And God didn't answer his question, but he did show up. He showed up and he showed Job, I'm God over and over in such incredible majesty and beauty and all-knowingness, I'm God. And you know what's really neat? That comforted Job. It comforted him. He was able to drop why. God says, I'm God, and Job says, well, all right then. Okay. Isn't that weird how that works out? Some things are just too much for us. Any of you who are pet parents and you have to take your pet to the vet and you can't explain to them any of it, all there is is for them to trust you. It's all you can hope for is that they'll trust you. Yeah, but what about if they're about to be put to sleep? Well, brothers and sisters, someday we're going to get put to sleep. Our time will come. And there's really nothing for it but to trust God. Such things are too big for us to understand. They're too high. We just have to trust him. 
God's love pursues us into the places we didn't know we were going. Have you ever wound up in a place in life where you think, how did I wind up here? What the Sam Hill happened? Well, I don't get it, you know? Do you ever argue with God? (laughs) Think about Jonah and where he wound up when he picked a fight with God. You know? Or think think about the nation of Israel when the prophets are bringing God's word and they're just not doing it, you know? They just don't wanna. And where they wound up. You ever spend time in your life running and hiding from God? I mean, you know better, but it's, it's like a little kid, you know? You know you're gonna get caught, but you're gonna hide in the closet anyway because what else can you do? Do you ever wind up kind of hoping that God will not notice you for a while? Right? Or just you wander away. You're not doing anything really particularly bad. You just kind of get into a groove and just wander off, you know? Like, again, a little kid in the supermarket. You're not running away from mom. You just aren't paying attention. And you wander off, and pretty soon you're lost. And you don't know where she is. You're not sure where you are. (laughs) Have you ever been in so much trouble in so much trouble that it feels like you're standing in the land of the dead, standing in your own grave in Sheol, looking up and wondering, how did I wind up here? Surely God will not come here and pull me out. I've gone too far. Word. Where could I go from your spirit? Or where could I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the land of the dead in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take up the wings of the dawn or dwell in the forest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. Not even catastrophe can mess this up. We're gonna go to Romans chapter eight, verses 38 and 39, where Paul kind of does a rant on this. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well and good, but what darkness do we fear? What catastrophe could fall on me and attempt to snatch me away from God? Some translations in this psalm talk about will the darkness hide me like I was gonna pull darkness over me like a blanket, you know, as a little kid hiding under the blanket. That's not the meaning of this. When it says will darkness cover me, what it means is is darkness going to attack me out of nowhere, fall upon me like a lion. That's the kind of darkness covering me it's talking about. Most of us are old enough, some of us are not, to remember Apollo 13. I mean the real Apollo 13 really happening. Do you remember how horrible it felt to think about those men not just dying, but dying out there? 
so far away you can't even imagine it. I mean, their bodies are never coming home. They're just going to be out there forever and amen. You remember that? That was a horrible feeling. And I'm talking about the world praying. I mean, even if you were an atheist, you were praying for those guys. Or what about being trapped in a downed submarine? Not only are you going to die, but your body will never see the sun again. Or what about being in the towers on 9-11 and you've got to choose between burning and jumping? Or what about enduring the devastation of a murdered child? Or what about discovering that that crappy feeling you've been wrestling with for three months is cancer everywhere? It's over. What about waking up behind the wheel of your car barreling down the highway at 80 miles an hour and the semi is right there? Catastrophe pouncing on you out of nowhere. Surely that is going to ruin everything. But that darkness pouncing on you is pouncing in vain because as far as God is concerned, that darkness is his brightest day around you. I would be safe in his arms the whole time. Word. If I say, surely this darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Here's another thing. You are made. You're created. You didn't happen. Just as nothing in the physical world or the spiritual realm can separate us from God, so no effect of my flesh can screw it up. No birth defect, no predisposition to some failing or other, no disease, no immense age or barely got started age. None of that can mess it up. Think about the man who was blind from birth who Jesus healed. Remember him? And his, and his disciples said, was he blind from earth because he screwed up or because his parents screwed up? And Jesus said, neither one. He was blind from birth so that the glory of God could be seen in him. That is true of each and every one of us. You were not conceived by accident. I don't care if you're the child of a rape or a surprise baby or something, somebody that's prayed for you for years and years and you finally happened, it doesn't matter. You were not conceived by accident. The right egg, the right sperm, at the right time to the right people. It's true. Jesus says the very hairs of your head are numbered. Why would he bother with that? but he does. I like to think of it as every, every molecule in, in my microbiota has a name. All six trillion of them. My flesh, this meat sack that I live in, has a relationship with God that's built in, and so does yours. I'm talking about the relationship that clay has to the potter. I'm talking about the relationship that paint has to the artist. That relationship is built in, it exists, it's there. Our bodies are subject to corruption, right? I mean, 
Many of us are of an age where it's kind of like, oh well, <laughs> subject to corruption, it happens. And our bodies have to be submitted to God's purpose. Otherwise, there's no point. But our bodies serve us as we serve God. No matter how falling apart they are, no matter how funkily put together they are, no matter what, our bodies serve us as we serve God. We submit our bodies to him and he uses them to reveal his glory. And, and our bodies are destined for resurrection. Amen? Ah, amen? All right then. Word. You created my inmost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, Lord, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my formless substance. In your book were written all the days that have been ordained for me before one of them ever happened. God is always attending to you. Do you ever wonder why we say pay attention? Attention is one of the most precious things we have to give each other. It's a payment. It's something you give and you can't get it back. <laughs> it's like a payment you made. Jesus says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the permission and presence of God right there with it. A sparrow was pretty darned insignificant, and we can do better than that. Not even a leech. Not even a bacterium. God pays attention to every detail. His love doesn't have edges. Remember back uh, when, when Bill Gates was being accused of putting uh, microchips in people? <laughs> I often joke about the poor schlub whose job it is to monitor my microchip. What a boring job that would be. What a monotonous, give me a break job, right? And yet, God attends to every sniffle that I sniff. God is aware of every decision that I make and cares about it. He is always paying attention. He's not bored with the details. I mean, think about it. I mean, we just talked about our body, but check out the end of your pinky. Every single one of the however many billions of cells are in there has a blood supply. God is not bored with details, ever. He digs on details. Word. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I wake, I'm still with you. This is good stuff. Isn't this a great psalm? Lots of warm love and just, mm. Ah, let's go on. Word. If only you would slay the wicked, God! Leave me, you men of bloodshed. 
For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Don't I hate those who hate you, Lord, and don't I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They've become my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Boy, that was like falling off the curb, wasn't it? (laughs) Wow, where did that come from? It's part of the deal. It actually flows perfectly. Because check this out. David is surrounded by people who are men of bloodshed. I mean, where did David come from? Where did he spend most of his life? On the battlefield. Surrounded himself with his mighty men, and that the whole point of being a mighty man is how many of the enemy can you kill? And then when he becomes a king, you know, he's immersed in politics, and everybody around him is part of some kind of agenda or scheme or whatnot. I mean, you can imagine what it would be like to be in that seat of power and not know who your friends are and who your enemies are and all that stuff. So in a very superficial sense, it makes perfect sense that David would occasionally just kind of freak out and say, yeah, just get rid of them, God. But that's not really where he's going here. David is a man after God's own heart. Think about that. Think about the way that he treated Saul when Saul was out to kill him. And he treated Saul with respect and took care not to to go after him. Think about the faith that David showed when he was confronted with Goliath. He looked around and everybody's terrified and he said, well, give me a helmet. I'll, I'll go after him. I've got some rocks. David's a a man after God's own heart. And, and, David is a man with blood on his hands. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. He's a man intimately acquainted with violence and death dealt out by his own hand. Not only that, think about his experiences with Uriah whose wife he coveted. He sends Uriah to the front lines and says, make sure he gets killed because I want his wife. David has blood on his hands. This is part of the package. Now it's starting to make a little more sense. This could be a prayer of purification. Oh Lord, will you destroy the wicked? Not just the people who are my enemies, but the wickedness in my own heart, the ways that I fail you, the ways that I shame your name. I hate that. I hate it when I do that stuff. I hate it when I take your name in vain. I hate it when I stop believing in your goodness. I hate it when I care more about being a king than being a servant. I hate that stuff. God, destroy it, please. Is this starting to make sense now? Yeah, it's all part of the same beautiful, wonderful, lovely psalm. Paul says that our enemies are the evil spirits that try to lead us astray. And David is deeply aware of that. Deeply aware of it. 
Our hearts are deceitful above all things. It doesn't do much good for us to examine our own hearts. I mean, we need to try, sure. But we need God to test our hearts. We need God to bring stuff to the surface. We need God to reach in there and kill the evil stuff that's in us. And that's what God does. David did not know the full story of the marvelous way that God was going to answer that prayer and equip the destruction of the evil in his heart. He doesn't know about Easter. He doesn't know how one of his descendants is going to save not only his own precious nation, but the whole world. He doesn't know any of that. But here's the thing, David knows God. And more importantly, David knows that God knows him. And so he's willing to trust God and open himself to wherever God is gonna take him. Amen? All right.